Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Horror Vanguard. Uh, I'm John, otherwise known as the Liquid Guy, and joined, as always, by my co-ghost, Ash. Ash, Ash, how are you? Pretty good. As spooky as ever as we approach the Halloween season. Oh, wait, this is after Halloween. Halloween was great. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Editing. Continuity is Magic. fun, folks. <laughs> and we have a very special guest joining us today. Uh, R.S. Benedict is in the Horror Vanguard crypt. How are you? Good, good. Enjoying Halloween, which happened previously to today <laughs> in the past it, 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 time time is weird isn't it time's <laughs> weird um, but thank you so much for coming on the show and um hopefully you won't mind by starting um if if people have not come across you have not encountered your work before would you mind maybe kind of introducing yourself to the to the horror vanguard listenership all right I am a published author of sci-fi, fantasy, and some body horror. My work has appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, and it's also been chosen for the late, great Gardner Dezois' Best of the Year anthologies. I also have a writing podcast called Write Good, that's R-I-T-E-G-U-D, and I hope you'll give that a listen. I talk about writing issues it's not exactly a how-to guide. It's more, I, I feel like people get more out of conversations about writing than these little formulaic how-to guides. Those, those don't really teach you how to write well. They teach you how to write kind of paint-by-numbers stuff. Um, obviously, as always, um, please do check the show notes for uh, links to, 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 to writing, to podcasts, to social media um, uh, at the end of the show. But but the reason we have brought you on is um, I'm, I'm really excited for today's episode because we're talking about possibly one of the most well-regarded horror films uh, that have been produced by, you know, American studios. Uh, we're talking about Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. This is going to be so good. It's going to be so good. <laughs> uh, but as always, before we before we jump in, before we uh, dissect uh, this uh, masterpiece by Wes Craven, it is time, as as always, as is now demanded by the by the horde, for uh, <laughs> one of Ash's patented, often imitated, never bettered plot recaps. 1974's Buster and Billy is an American crime picture released by Columbia Pictures. It is the first cinematic appearance of Robert England, who would go on to be our film star and the star of indeed, I think like what, 700 different movies as Freddy Krueger at this point? <laughs> yeah, Today, roughly, roughly. Roughly, yes. Today we're talking about Nightmare, The Nightmare on Elm Street, the story of a hardworking career actor who is willing to do whatever it takes <laughs> to launch himself into the mainstream of horror cinema, including slashing a, a bunch of a bunch of attractive teens, 
for not one, not two, not three, not four, not not five, not even New Nightmare, not even all of his appearances. <laughs> An extended media universe. We are talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street. I'm a big Robert England fan, so I chose to focalize him. <laughs> <They're plot recap. laughs> like I like I like how these plot recaps have just increasingly have nothing to do with the plot of these movies, and they they're always right. followed up by like John doing a real plot recap. In a way, I think Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one, is a semi-autobiographical story about a young actor named Johnny Depp who just falls into a hole. (laughs) (laughs) And he he was never seen again. (laughs) Right. You know, yeah, it is a shame that that was his last appearance. I think that I think that young man had some chops. It's it's just terrible. He didn't get any more work after that. Oh, just awful. Just imagine the wonderful things he could be doing with his life right now. You know what he wouldn't be doing? He wouldn't be starring as just like the rancid bit part villain in the Harry Potter spin-off spin-off movie. Absolutely not. And he definitely wouldn't be doing perfume ads that play up a Native American stereotype. Oh no, he wouldn't have he that. Definitely wouldn't theme do in that. his career. There's no way. No, no too no. much integrity. No, yeah. He probably also wouldn't just be like personally a piece of shit either. <laughs> Absolutely not. Here we are. Here we are burning the bridge. Johnny Depp is never going to come on my podcast now. (laughs) Uh, Good riddance. Good riddance. Um, So, so like Nightmare on Elm Street is, is kind of almost by now is canonical, right? If we're talking about the history of horror cinema, it, it is by now like canonical. And I'm sure people are wondering, you know, genuinely, is there anything new to to say about this but i think we have some we we we've got a kind of interesting uh episode lined up that we want to try and talk about this from an angle that i've never seen explored before um and this is what our guest is here to do so where should we start john what was that oh man this is this is heavier than i thought did john is that is that an unlicensed nuclear accelerator um, yeah, so, look, the pod hasn't been making enough money lately, so I've signed up with, uh, Buster, the app that connects haunted property owners with freelance paranormal experts. Buster makes you feel good. Are you sure that thing is safe? The good people at Buster say it is. Uh, well, um, Ash, I'm... I'm gonna have to go. There's a Weatherspoons in Stoke-on-Trent that booked a containment for a level three free-floating semi-corporeal apparition. Wish me luck. Dear listeners, that was a dramatic telling of what could happen to your ghosts. I mean hosts, without your support. To keep HV above ground, sign up to our Patreon where you'll get access to our Discord server, early episodes, and the exclusive Arcane Book Club of Horror. If each of our listeners contributed just a few dollars a month, we wouldn't have to haul around experimental ghost-busting technology. Remember to like, share, and review our show wherever premium podcasts are sold. Now back to the program. Well, why don't we start at the beginning with the inspiration for the film? Most horror fans probably know the inspiration like this. 
Wes Craven read a news story about a guy who had nightmares and then he died in his sleep. And, and that's the story we're kind of told, that there was a guy who was afraid of falling asleep because of his nightmares, and he drank coffee, and he spit out the sleeping pills that his parents gave him, and then when he finally fell asleep, he died, and the doctors couldn't find any explanation of it. He was young, he was in good health, he didn't really have heart problems, it just didn't make sense. And, and that's the story that most of us know, and that, I think, is the story that's also mentioned in Neil Gaiman's Sandman comics. But there's a lot more to this story. There's a lot that's been left out. The story has been depoliticized. This wasn't one random guy. This was actually an outbreak of what has since been termed sudden arrhythmic death syndrome. And this happened especially among Southeast Asian immigrants, in particularly, or sorry, in particular, these were refugees who fled the Vietnam War, who, who fled conflict in Laos and Cambodia. And this sleep death plague was particularly high among a Laotian ethnic minority group called the Hmong, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that badly. Uh, Hmong men, average age in their 30s, in good health, were just dying in their sleep at freakishly high rates, and scientists really couldn't figure out why. These guys didn't have previous histories of heart disease. Some scientists thought, well, maybe it's some kind of Agent Orange thing. Maybe it's some kind of chemical weapon they were exposed to. But this syndrome mainly happened in men. And if it were Agent Orange, we probably would have seen it in women and, and kids, too. Some researchers suggested that it was superstition, uh, the Hmong believed in an evil spirit called the Tsog Tsuam that sits on people and attacks them in their sleep. Uh, this is actually a very common type of, of spiritual belief that explains sleep paralysis and nightmares. And there are similar monsters to this in, in creatures all over the world. I think that's what night hags are. Um, so researchers said that these people were effectively scaring themselves to death because of their belief in this night demon. And unfortunately, a lot of articles, especially articles written in the, at the time, have this really condescending, kind of racist attitude of like, oh, these, these primitive people scaring themselves to death with their silly superstitions. Um, but let's look at the story of the Hmong refugees and how they ended up in the USA. Um, during the Vietnam War, the CIA recruited and trained indigenous Hmong people in Laos to fight the North Vietnamese army. And it was a fucking meat grinder for them, to, to put it bluntly. Um, this I'm getting these figures from PBS. Hmong soldiers died at a rate 10 times as high as that of American soldiers in Vietnam. So just think of Apocalypse Now, think of all, think of Platoon, think of all those dramatic Vietnamese, Vietnam War movies and think of what the Americans are going through and multiply that by 10. And that's what these guys went through. So it was horrible. Um, and, and, when, and when the communists won, a lot of Hmong fled the country for fear of retaliation. And this was a really rough journey. It's not like, oh, let me just take a bus. They were poor generally, so they had to travel on foot, which is really fucking dangerous. They had to travel over rough terrain. They had to cross really scary rivers. They had to like swim across dangerous rivers and good luck. If, if you can't swim, you're kind of fucked. You're going to drown. Um, a lot of them ended up in refugee camps in Thailand, and these camps were horribly overcrowded. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have running water. 
So that was just a, a terrible place to be. Um, and there were freakishly high rates of sudden arrhythmic death syndrome, also uh, called SADS, in these refugee camps. And then a bunch of them ended up in the United States, too, and they had really high SADS death rates, too. So these were guys who'd fought in the Cold War, who'd seen loved ones die because of it, who'd seen their their country get torn apart by it, and now they're displaced, and as a result of it, they're really far away from their homeland, from their culture, they've lost, like, everything. And I can't stress enough how powerful the culture shock is. These were people who lived in these small, close-knit agrarian communities and fishing villages where everybody knew everyone, and everybody's family knew everybody else's family going back generations. And now they're either in these overcrowded refugee camps or in the USA, which is this hyper-individualistic, very isolating culture. And that had a hell of a lot to do with it, I think. Not just superstition, but just the stress, the, the, the psychic stress of going through that and then being in this place where you don't have the resources to deal with it. Um, that that would fuck anybody up, I think. <laughs> um, the Atlantic wrote, uh, did recently ran an article about this, uh, a, a researcher who did a book on it, and they were, unfortunately, it does take that kind of gross, like, ooh, the, the superstition um, idea. This is an article from 2011 called The Dark Side of the Placebo Effect, When Intense Belief Kills. But... This article does, I think, accidentally stumble upon what I think was really going on here, and I'm just going to read out loud a quote from it. Some Hmong felt that they had not properly honored the memories of their ancestors, which was a known risk, sorry, which was a known risk factor among the Hmong for being visited by the Tsogtswam, that's the sleep demon. Once the nightmare visitations began, a shaman was often needed to set things right. And in the scattered communities of Hmong against, uh, uh, sorry, and in the scattered communities of Hmong across the country, they might not have access to the right person. Without access to tr traditional rituals, shamans, and geographies, the Hmong were unable to provide themselves psychic protection from the spirits of their sleep. So these articles often take this kind of gross tone of, oh, these primitive people, if only they'd been more rational. But to me, it just reads like, trauma and trauma compounding on other trauma, the trauma of this war, displacement, culture shock, and the loneliness, the extreme loneliness of being a foreigner, on top of the already very big loneliness that's just all over American culture, and all of these traumas kind of piled one on top of the other, and it just did them in. And they were cut off from the sense of community and ritual that normally would have helped them cope with this. And to be corny, I mean, they, they kind of died of broken hearts as a result of it. And the only other option, I guess, was psychiatry. I guess you could get therapy, but therapy in the 80s fucking sucked. I mean, that was the age of, like, recovered memories. Yeah. And the satanic panic. They really yep. didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And and therapy and, and psychiatry, they're not bad, but they're not a substitute for community. And I think we mm -hmm. get a little bit of that in, in Nightmare on Elm Street, too. There's a scene where Nancy goes to a psychiatrist, and it doesn't really help very much. <laughs> yeah. And if there's any, if there's any like, 
um, I guess, doubt in the listeners' minds about the political uh, origin of this film. Here's a quote directly from Wes Craven, and I'm pulling this from Cinefant. It is, uh, and I'm not going to cut that for me either. I'm going to leave in that giant stumble. Cinefantastique. There we go. Uh, Craven has said about the uh, inspiration for the Freddy Krueger films, it was a series of articles in the LA Times. Three small articles about men from Southeast Asia who were from immigrant families and had died in the middle of nightmares. And the paper never correlated them, never said, hey, we've got another story like this. That and the pop song Dreamweaver, but probably more importantly, all of these men from Southeast Asia dying in their sleep. Right. What I think is really interesting about about kind of recontextualizing or, or kind of repoliticizing this is the extent to which it underscores a kind of a really important truth, which is that imperialist violence is inherently traumatic. I yeah. mean, this is, this is something that Fanon wrote about, you know, in 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 the in the kind of war of liberation in Algeria, that there is there is a kind of psychic toll. You know, imperialism is not just it's not just the kind of economic stage of capitalism, as Lenin wrote about, but is a kind of reforming of a of a of a populace on the kind of subjective and psychic level. Right, and that doesn't go away. That does not just go away quickly. It's not like okay, war's over. You're living in the suburbs now. Have a barbecue, drink a beer, feel better. It's like that shit stays with you, and it just fucks you up down through generations. All right. Um, now I think, it, well, I, 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 I'm not sure how much, well, you guys probably know this a lot, but Wes Craven was very much a political, uh, a political animal. So oh, yeah. much of his work was super political. I mean, he did people mm. under the stairs, right? Oh yeah. People under the stairs, curse, yeah. new nightmare, scream, even shocker, a like throwaway horror comedy movie has a lot of really deep political undertones. Oh, absolutely. And horror often is super political. It can be incredibly reactionary, unfortunately, but a lot of the time it's also really subversive. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not a super deep point to bring up that monsters represent other fears most of the time. Sometimes these are just these deep archetypical fears, but a lot of the time they're contemporary fears, fears of, in H.P. Lovecraft's instance, fear of immigration, um, fear of whatever's going on, cultural anxieties. And Wes Craven was not shy about talking about that. He wore his politics on his sleeve in a very, very big way. And I, I think it's a little frustrating to see just how much Nightmare on Elm Street kind of gets depoliticized in discussion about it, where it's just, oh, it's a, it's a spooky guy with knife hands. That's what it's about. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not about that. <laughs> not entirely about that. I mean, the sequels are about different things. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, I don't think was about Vietnam. No. <laughs> um, not so much. But the first one has the Vietnam War and the Cold War just woven into its DNA in a huge way and it in a lot of other ways i think it deals with the emotional fallout of vietnam for the americans as well yeah i think that's a really interesting point to go on to i mean i mean we've talked about this a lot on the show that horror is 
uh, I think a lot of horror fandom often often sees what we do what we do on this show with a bit of kind of exasperation of like why are you making all of this political? To which the answer is it was it already was right. Absolutely. So monsters and horror films are like affective psychological shortcuts. They're they're machines for kind of generating cultural antagonism, and so like to deny that is to sort of miss why these films are so good. Right. Um, but to to kind of like carry on what you were talking about, uh, I really do like this idea that um, this is a film that's basically about the American inability to process what's happened in Vietnam. Um, right. And I think I think that you you're kind of picking on the on the parents and their role in this. So maybe we could kind of dive into that a little bit. Okay. Uh... Just to deal with a little bit of the pop culture context, uh, American pop culture didn't really start dealing with Vietnam in a big way until around the end of the 70s and at the early 80s. Earlier on in the 70s, talking about Vietnam was like box office poison. No one wanted to do to deal with it. But mm -hmm. around this time, we started seeing like Rambo, Platoon, all these movies about Vietnam that... And it was interesting to watch the transformation of movies that looked back on the tragedy of Vietnam and then started rewriting history and turning it into this glorious, wonderful thing. Um, but I think what's happening in, in Nightmare on Elm Street is that the kids are kind of going through that too. Their parents did not want to talk about Freddy Krueger. They did, never even mentioned his name. They mm -hmm. never told the children about that. And the children are just experiencing this weird fallout this horrible thing that doesn't have a name to the, to them yet. All they know is there's this really fucked up shit happening and they're asking their parents what's going on. And the parents are like, don't, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. There's nothing, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. And only after this long process, do they start uncovering what happened in the past? And it, it, it isn't until I think two different kids have gotten killed that, Nancy's mom takes her down to the cellar and tells her who Freddy Krueger was and what happened. It takes multiple instances of horrific death for the parents to even admit that this shit happened. And I think that's kind of culturally what America was going through in, in a way, too. There was there there's sort of the stereotype of the shell-shocked nom vet but that that was a thing i definitely grew up having like uncles and teachers who were sort of nice guys but had serious fucking ptsd uh from from being in vietnam and you just sort of knew how not to trigger them and we didn't use the word trigger back then but that was definitely a thing that would happen um i had a really nice science teacher in middle school who was a super good guy but when a kid did not stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, he hurled a desk across the room and started screaming about how he'd watched his friends get shot. Like, that... We we kind of grew up around that and just being told, like, don't mention the war to your uncle. Don't mention the war. Don't mention the war. Don't mention anything. Like, don't talk about it. And to me, that's, that rings very similar as to what the kids are going through in Nightmare on Elm Street. This fucked up thing happened and and they're seeing the legacy of it. And the parents are just like, no, 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 no. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then mom drinks a bottle of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> and the truth comes out. And, the, and, and the, I think in a way, that's a very classic horror trope, right? It's right. The, repre the repressed secret. It's the it's the it's the body under the under the floor. It's the it's the kind of 
the the letter that's been hidden it's it goes which goes back all the way to kind of like really canonical gothic novels that you can you can hide you can repress as much as you like but eventually the truth is going to come out because this kind of violence will always find a way of kind of re-emerging into the present right right and uh i think there's Another parallel here in terms of the parents and Nightmare on Elm Street and the kids, and, and obviously the parents represent sort of the older generations, the architects of the Cold War, and the kids, I, I guess, would be like Generation X who are trying to cope with this bullshit, in that the parents did something really fucked up to try to keep their kids safe, but it's not working, and instead this barbaric thing they did created another monster that the kids have to deal with. Um and I know this requires a little bit of boomer brain thinking because <laughs> I think, well, younger people, I think, have a have a have a more positive attitude toward vigilante justice and angry mobs than older people do. Even kind of progressive boomers like Wes Craven tended to yeah. fr uh, frown upon angry mobs with pitchforks and torches. I think young people with, you know, kids today with their guillotine jokes and their eat the rich <laughs> Jokes are kind of like, yeah, angry mobs rule. Cops suck. Fuck that. Um, but I think a lot of baby boomers, especially progressive ones, tend to equate angry mobs and vigilanteism with like Jim Crow era lynching. Yeah. So they're a little bit more of the like, no, call the police sort of sort of attitude versus versus young leftists who are just like, fucking fuck it up. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so, uh, so I, to 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 I think most young people, the idea of like, yeah, there's a there's like a child molesting murderer in town. Yeah, set him on fire, set his dick on fire. That's cool. Do that. That's cool. Um, a sort of baby boomer era progressive like like Wes Craven would frown upon that and see it as fucked up and barbaric. Um, there's a little bit of a ge generation gap here, but but in short, basically. The parents did something fucked up to try to keep their kids safe, and it failed, and it instead has created this new monster mm -hmm. that the parents aren't willing to cope with. And that's a lot of the Cold War and a lot of the legacy of the Cold War, and I think in a way Wes Craven kind of saw forward to the shit we're dealing with now, and that we're still dealing with the legacy of the fucked up shit that that the West did in the Cold War. We're still dealing with fucking Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, I think this is this is something you can see through the entire, I guess, Freddy franchise. If let's go with that. That um, you, you have this constant reoccurring theme of we're always making new monsters in a way, as, as a way to hide from the monsters we had made the decade before. And when we, when we kind of like arrive at the apotheosis of all of this, when we arrive at New Nightmare, Right. And we have this meta film of people filming a Freddy Krueger movie because Freddy Krueger is just so popular and they can't get rid of the character. But it turns out he's real. Right. And he's only ever manifested by by this collective focus on him. You get this you get kind of like it's almost like a parable of restorative justice. Right. Like there's never a moment in this timeline or in this continuity where where this where people try to stop the cycle right they, they just constantly recapitulate to it and it's always like we need to, to defeat freddy and to bury him one last time but freddy is kind of emblematic of this greater cycle of violence that, that we see extending through the cold war through like the psyche of ptsd in american soldiers 
and you, this is something that you you can't you can't bury because it, it has to resurface it will resurface for the next batch of of like plucky teens who have to face off against it right and i mean there is the point that that is a very basic point in film and, and literature, but violence begets more violence. Yep. <laughs> and that is what's happening. It's barbarism creating more barbarism. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a, it's, it's a basic point, but I think it's also like a basic truth, you know? It's like, I, right. I think there's, in a way it reminds me of like the whole power of friendship discourse, right? Like that's very like, you know, like that's one of it's the things- so corny, It's so corny, you yeah, know It's what? one of the things that like, like critics- pan the marvel or like one of the things that critic i don't i shouldn't say critics pan the marvel movies because everybody eats that stuff like the candy it is but like one one of the reoccurring hits it takes is like at the end of every movie it's literally just all of these characters relearning the power of friendship and it's corny but like you know friendship makes the world go round it is powerful like these these things that are hack and corny i think are are in part, right? This, of course, like this is an oversimplification of a larger discourse, but they're hack and corny because the the extant kind of cultural framework needs them to be hack and corny, you know? Because right. because if we all like if we all really did put friendship first, like the Care Bears tried to teach us two decades ago, we we would have <laughs> a much better world. Right, and I mean, if we're dealing with issues of psychological trauma, then then relationships and community ties are incredibly important. Yes. Yep. To healing from that hyper isolationism, isolating yourself is not good for for your for your mental health at all. And no. there are a ton of studies about this. And unfortunately, the way America is, it's kind of hard to do that it is kind of hard to form those those ties and and maintain those ties and mm-hmm. we live in a very isolating culture where the people you talk to every day are generally your co-workers not really people you want to be around but people you kind of have to be around yeah and i think the i think the the nightmare movies especially the first one really make that explicit right because you have right. that you have that happening on like the, the the kind of like what what would be like an individualistic emotional and psychological level with the fact that like most of the time when you square off against Freddy Krueger you're alone in a dream world that no one else can have have access to right like like right. it's only under kind of constructed and extreme circumstances that you can pair up with people in in Freddy's nightmare landscape and right. then you have like these larger societal things keeping people isolated you've got the physical distance of suburbia you've got the fact that the that that like the, the, instead of like finding a collective solution that people are constantly going for like very individualistic things like the impulse of vengeance that starts the Freddy Krueger cycle you've got people like like popping pills to try and stay awake another 10 minutes and that's a very individualistic approach as well right right and i mean nancy smart nancy is always looking toward other people to kind of work with other people unfortunately the person she leans on the most is johnny depp <laughs> which doesn't really work out for her very well in this movie. Moral, yeah, moral of the story, kids. You cannot, <laughs> you cannot trust Johnny Depp at all. <laughs> he is terrible. He's a terrible boyfriend. Just constantly, he cannot stay awake for five seconds when she fucking needs him to. He cannot keep watch for five seconds in dreamland. He is very bad at this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> unfortunately... I think I think what you both have been saying is really interesting and and it to kind of maybe suggest something is it is it fair to say then that the kind of gen x cynicism 
is a is a kind of natural result of the the failure of these kind of good boomer parents who do something horrific because they think they have to but also a way something that perpetuates the very problem that they were trying to solve oh yeah yeah i think so in a big way um generation x cynicism it it what i mean it's appealing when when the stuff you're asked to believe in is a bunch of stupid bullshit, you naturally become <laughs> really cynical and kind of sarcastic and shut down. Uh, and that's sort of the Gen X ethos. But as uh, David Foster Wallace wrote in an article in a really good essay, I forget what it was called, but it was all about Gen X and cynicism and sarcasm. That that way is only destructive, and it doesn't lead anywhere. It doesn't lead toward anything, just away from something. And I mean, I think that's a good first step getting away from, from a bunch of dumb bullshit, but then what, what happens at the end is this, like, you just have this sucking black hole, this vacuous nothing. And, and you just kind of get stuck. Like, I think it's very mm -hmm. telling that so many of the nineties counterculture icons People like Billy Corgan ended up being fucking reactionary yeah. shitheads. I mean, Billy Corgan's on fucking Infowars. Yep. And meanwhile, the like cutesy pop people who were decidedly very uncool ended up being really progressive. Like the Venga Boys gave a free concert after yep. the collapse of Austria's far right government. And Ricky fucking Martin overthrew the corrupt neoliberal government of Puerto Rico. Like, yeah. it's bananas. <laughs> Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think like Fr Freddy Krueger, um, in a way, that first film also kind of like bottles this kind of contention. Right. Because like you have you have like that classic Gen X, X discourse of like wanting to connect to something authentic and wanting to be real. But right. in actuality, like it, it, this is just this is entirely fruitless. This is a ludicrous way to hang your entire worldview. It's, it's just a bad framework. And Freddy, Freddy embodies that, right? Because Freddy, Freddy is literally not real. You know, Freddy is, Freddy is a dream. He is like the thing that, that can be scary, but cannot harm you. And nevertheless, it's just destroying everything around him. Right. Right. And I think the character of Glenn, uh, played by our wonderful Johnny Depp, really does <laughs> kind of sum up a lot of that uh, Gen X ethos and that his response to everything is to like sort of vaguely look at it distantly and kind of talk about it, but not actually try and do anything and eat then except just like watch titty videos on TV. I mean, that's all. And that's sort of what does him in when he should be like trying to remain vigilant. All he does is put his headphones on and watch, what is it? Miss sexy USA yep. or whatever it was that in that show <laughs> yeah. with the, with the TV sitting on his crotch and then he falls asleep and Freddie turns him into a blood fountain. And that what's more Gen X than that really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. That's. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm just like I'm so I'm so enamored with how this episode is like the stealth. None of us fucking like Johnny Depp episode. <laughs> no, fuck him. God um, damn it. I think I think that that point about kind of cynicism, you can see it really clear clearly in someone like uh, Aston Alice, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Like the the Gen X horror writer 
who right. was the one who kind of tore through all of the kind of sanctimonious bullshit of, of you know, the American dream and the, the value of capitalism and the greed is good. And, oh, and, yeah. now it's, and now it's like the most boring, like dinner party, like right wing reactionary. Mm-hmm. Who, who, and it's like you see this kind of exhaustion of cynicism. But at the same time, I also think that like the idea of a kind of new, new sincerity hasn't really emerged yet. We don't really know what that's going to look like. Right. And it's tricky because that's been, I think that's being co-opted in a big, big way just to sell more bullshit. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you see it a lot with viral marketing and influencer culture and these mm-hmm. like influencers who act like they're the best friend to their fans and they get these really, I think, creepily close relationships with their fans, many of whom are young tweens, and they're just using it to sell whatever. And it's really sad and disheartening and depressing because in some ways, younger people, millennials and Zoomers especially, are really, really uh, sharp when it comes to older forms of advertising and Mm -hmm. older forms of manipulation. They don't buy into it, but a lot of them are buying into this social media influencer viral like i'm your fake friend thing and that's so so depressing yeah absolutely i remember kids parasocial relationships are not real friendships (laughs) (laughs) and so many of them end up being abusive like so many youtube and how many youtube and twitch stars end up getting in trouble for like sending photos of their dicks to 13 year olds like a lot of them a way 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 too many Uh, no, I was just gonna. I was just gonna say then, like this idea of the dream of the dreamscape as being a place in which, like, you can take control of it and you can act in a way that's positive and isn't just a kind of passive. Uh, you know, you, you you're not just you don't just become a passive subject, Nancy. Especially, you become an active subject in the dream world in this kind of imaginative space. Does suggest that I don't know. Maybe maybe Wes Craven is a little more optimistic about the Gen Xs than we've been being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is some this sort of mysticism to a lot of what he says about like taking back your energy and, you know, the idea is this could be a dream. If you take an active role in society, if you take an active role in the dream world, you could make this an incredible, wonderful utopian experience if you just stop being passive. So that's sort of his solution is recognize what you're in, be aware of what the world really is and, and be an active person in it instead of just falling asleep with the TV on your crotch, like Johnny Depp. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, all of that sounds great. And Horvath got thoroughly endorses it, but alongside the, uh, immortal science of dialectical materialism, (laughs) you've got to, you've got to have that bit as well. Otherwise, otherwise the whole thing just doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe maybe that's the key, the key failure and the inability to actually like legitimately deal with Freddy. Besides, obviously, we have like the meta structure of Hollywood always demanding more sequels and it never being actually possible to end anything. Right. We do have we do have the internal logic of the film where like Freddy, Freddy is again, you know, like not properly dealt with. Right. Like this isn't this isn't restorative justice for the families who lost children. This isn't a vision of a society where like. I mean, like, let's just assume that, like, Freddy Krueger, the man before he became the super monster, was, like, 
unable to be to be saved on any level there was no there were there were there would never have been a kind of therapy that could have helped someone like that right right you know like what 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 then is the societal framework that's not burning a man alive after he's committed an atrocity as a way of dealing with the problem like what is the framework that actually diverts the energy of this cycle right i think like that, that that's kind of like one of the scariest parts about freddy is is at the end they they do the thing that, that happened at the start of the movie but this time to like super ghost demon freddy right yeah and and it doesn't work um no no it doesn't well, because it can't it can't and I, that's something i thought, thought that was so interesting that i think tied into this whole idea of the cold war and also the age of terrorism yeah. that followed it which is Nancy's idea is to do a very militaristic solution. She kind of starts reading like military manuals and sets up booby traps and explosives and stuff around her house. And she's going to lure Freddy out and deal with him with violence in a very militaristic way. And um, that doesn't work. He still he keeps coming back. And the other way, the way that actually looks like it could work is to just walk away and I kind of mm -hmm. hated that when I first saw the movie, just because it made me think of the way that like women are pressured to forgive yeah. abusive men or, or alternately the way like black Americans are pressured to forgive murderous psycho cops and, and hug them after they're oh, sentenced yeah. for shooting your brother who just ate a bowl of ice cream in his apartment and so on and so forth. Um, but following this following this idea that this is sort of about the cold war like walking away kind of is the right thing to do because in our case the more we keep getting involved in these same conflicts over and over again going no this time we'll fix it like we invaded afghanistan to try and save it from the soviets and and instead accidentally sort of created al-qaeda and then we invade afghanistan again to try and de deal with al-qaeda and we just keep creating more and more fucking problems and like the only thing to really do is to just i guess just fucking walk away like nancy does at the end mm -hmm. but that's not really a solution either because it's like it's kind of too late there have been too many wrongs and obviously like more violence isn't going to fix things but if you walk away it's not like oh everything's fine you know the past 30 years of dropping bombs on this part of the world is that's fine. That's done now. We're okay now. Everything's going to be okay now. Like, you're still going to be trapped in this. That's still going to have horrific lingering effects that are still going to pass on to from generation to generation. Like, you, it's a fight you can't win, but you can't really make an escape because there's just too much ugliness in the past. And I, yeah. I love that final scene where Nancy and her friends, like Gen X and I guess everything that comes up, after are literally trapped in this thing their parents created while the parents just look on totally oblivious and smiling. <laughs> and, it, and it's worth, it's worth reiterating that all of the parents in this film are like just checked out. Like, Oh yeah. They're, oh, they're so they're like, worthless. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they're all on pills. They're all drinking. They're all like completely incapable of genuinely processing or, or kind of, kind of uh, acknowledging, facing up to this. Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, what what we would call in like Lacanian terms the kind of traumatic real, mm -hmm. the mm. capital the capital R real that cannot be admitted because that would mean 
uh, everything else kind of shatters before it. So right. Kind of, I mean, you, for Nancy's mom, every moment of every day is vodka o'clock. She <laughs> is a legend. Just these bottles of vodka stashed in every corner of the house, in the fridge, in the freezer, in the linen closet. It's just, oh, she's she's great. <laughs> I love her so much. <laughs> but but that's that's a kind of necessary. It's so necessary. Like there's not, there's no sense that the adults are kind of like hedonistic. This is like, it's like uh, anesthetic, you know, it's a way of kind of numbing uh, yourself, help it protecting yourself, shielding yourself from kind of acknowledging the kind of enormity of what happened. In a way, given, given how we've talked about this, it reminds me quite a lot of Jacob's Ladder, mm-hmm. which, which is what, five, six years down the line from this? I think so. Yeah. Soon after. Um, well, within it, within the decade, you know, we, we yeah. also get this, uh, what is a very kind of personal inability to process, you know, to acknowledge the kind of totality of what you've been through. And so it gets, that one also gets kind of sublimated into these weird hallucinations, into these weird, violent dreams. Uh, in, and I think maybe, I don't want to get too Freudian, but, you know, maybe that's a kind of necessary means of kind of processing through these this this trauma on the historic level rather than just kind of an individual thing. Mm. Absolutely. And if, mon- and if monsters are a kind of cultural expression of the anxieties of a particular moment, they're the kind of nightmares of culture of a given age, right? Absolutely. Oh, well, it, it makes me think too of how much of the U.S. military and the U.S. government is just completely unequipped to deal with the threat of Mm -hmm. terrorism. Like, I remember around 2001 to 2003, the U.S. military was having this shortage of of, uh, Arabic speakers because most of their translators were still speaking fucking Russian. Yeah. Like, the CIA was still just training people to study Russian. Like, guys... It's been 10 years. You are not ready for this. You do not know how to deal with this at all. Holy fuck. It's startling how ill-equipped they are. And and they still think they're fighting the Cold War. They still think this is just like, oh yeah, we can just sort of go on there and... and or honestly, they still think they're fighting fucking World War II in the way they think. I mean, like we had a president who's like, let's send more tanks in. That'll fix it. Like, What? Yeah, this is ludicrous. So my favorite example of my my favorite modern example, all of this is uh, Millennium Challenge 2002, a.k.a. MCO2, right? Like this was a military uh, war game staged by the Air Force. Right. And it it was supposed to be like a um, I think he was retired, like a retired uh, general. I think his name was I think he had like a really cool name, like Van Ripper or something. What? Yeah, I know, right? He he has he has like he's a Freddy extra, right? Like that's his name, oh um, General Jack D. Ripper and yeah. his precious fluids. But like, but like, so so the story goes like they had this retired general, and they're like, okay, buddy, you're gonna be the Iranians. Here's your script. Uh, here here's your here's your stuff. Right? These are the these are the weapons you have. These are the resources. All right, you're gonna be attacked by a fleet of U.S. big dick Air Force killing machines. Right. And and we'll have a little war game. And and the people who were playing the U.S. side were like, we're like, oh, this is this isn't even a contest, right? This is a joke. Right. But but that guy was like, okay, well, like they're expecting me to use radio. They're expecting me to use these techniques, right? What mm. if I did this stuff? And so instead of using radio, he had motorcycle messengers 
play the Iranian oh. information line. And he had he did he did like a bunch of like I think I think like he sent an IED out on a fishing boat or something, and like he, he shut the whole fucking thing down in like three hours. Wow. And and like and of, of course the United States government instead of being like oh god we have to we have to go back to the drawing board we need to relearn our tactics and strategy we're not equipped to fight this kind of enemy. They right. they were like nobody you didn't stick to the script this isn't how this goes oh, you have to god. use these things <laughs> because there's no way there's no way Iran would ever ever be like oh maybe if we don't use the thing they're watching to send messages we can get some secrets or something like it's it's just it's oh, a no. ludicrous and perfect example of of kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, they oh, they wow. change they they stop the war game, change the rules in mm-hmm. the scenario, so that the U.S. would definitely win. Yeah, and you just have to ask the Iranians to play by our rules. I'm sure they will. In the event of open warfare, they're going to be like, yeah, we'll we'll use radio, sir. Absolutely, we wouldn't want to be rude. That's just not sporting. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just so it's so fucking ludicrous. And I think um to kind of go back to an earlier point uh, about um the monstrosity in the first Freddy Krueger film, and indeed many of the later ones. Um, one one of the things that I kind of always think about in horror, especially like you know, because Freddy Krueger isn't really children's horror, but it's it's like teens horror, right? Like, yeah. like, like the, the, the Freddy Krueger movie is simultaneously aimed at an older crowd because it is much more violent. It's much more explicitly sexual. But like, if you're like 12, 13, 14, you're like, you're going to you're going to start to connect to a lot of what's going on with the main characters in this because they're living oh, in yeah. a milieu similar to you. Right. Yeah. And their parents just don't understand what's going on, man. Exactly. Right. <laughs> and and that's 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 the mediated level of monstrosity here. Right. Because you've got Freddy Krueger, who's like, obviously, Freddy is a monster because he's a shape shifting demon who lives in your dreams and slashes you to pieces but then you have you have the monstrosity of parents who do not care for their children right these parents are like 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 um, mm-hmm. both of you have been mentioning like they're they're drunk and high and just totally checked out for most yeah. for most if not all of the movie they're they're completely uninterested even after their children are being like like if i ever had a kid and i walked into their room and they're just shredded and there's blood on the ceiling my first thought. Yeah, if I ever like, had to like put a bucket down to collect what's left right? of my son, yeah, like I'm, in that I'm one scene, like, they got a bucket of Glenn just dripping out of the ceiling, yeah, and they it, got it's, it's just, just like, like, well, get him up. That's my son. You're, 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 you're just like, well, this definitely isn't the the pan dimensional <laughs> demon we created two decades ago. There's no way it can be him. <laughs> <laughs> I one thing I will say in defense of the parents is that they're horrifically traumatized too. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, the act of setting a man on fire and watching him burn is going to fuck you up pretty good, even if that guy was terrible. And this isn't mentioned in the final cut, but in the original script, these kids, our main characters, were not only children. No, yeah, that, that's heavily intimated, yeah. They had a little brother or a big brother, little sister, big sister, who Freddie killed. So the parents mm-hmm. are coping with that, too. Yep. So I kind of think that... As as shitty and useless as they are, it's like, well, their children were murdered by this thing and they killed him. And they're like, we're done. We're not thinking about this anymore. That whole fucking horrific thing we went through. It's over. It is over. We're not discussing this. It's done. And just I can understand not being able to face that because holy fucking shit, that's terrible. Like, oh, my God, the thing that murdered my kid is now a, a dream demon. Nope, <laughs> I'm not dealing with that. Right? I'm like, going like, to go get some of my linen vodka now. That's what I'm going to do. 
And, that, and that's what I, that's what I was getting at with these mediated levels of monstrosity, right? You've got the literal monster right. in Freddy. You've got you've got the monstrosity of the parents. You've got the the monstrosity that the children are slowly becoming through the trauma that they're being exposed to, and then you've got like the meta monstrous construct that is the greater societal machinery that kind of allows these horrors and terrors to perpetuate. Absolutely. And if there is one thing that you can take from the kind of history of horror, it's that like history is never done right it's like you can never go this event is now over especially especially things which are kind of traumatic and violent and have a kind of horror to them we're all, like i mean you just need to look at the history of american foreign policy to see that oh it's, yeah the the past is that you know what's the the faulkner quote the past is never dead it's not even past like right you know, we the idea that you can just go, all right, we're going to go through something that's going to be terrible, but then we'll never have to think about it again. Mm-hmm. It's just wishful. It's just wishful thinking. Yeah. yeah, and it's completely absurd. I mean, there's that just doesn't happen. That's not how human minds work. Yeah, bad shit happens. It affects people. Yeah, you live through the event, but then you have to live having lived through it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, w- and without without like any any concern for legitimate healing, there there is no way to move forward that isn't just continuing the monstrosity to shift it and to change its shape. You know, yeah, repress right. and and produce more monsters. <laughs> repress and uh, and and burn more things and drink and go to the terrible nineteen eighties version of psychiatry that exists and. There's a lack of a sense of spiritualism, which is something that I find very interesting, which is that uh, Glenn, of all people, comes up with sort of the solution in that he takes a more of a mystical spiritual approach. Now, I'm not a religious person, but I do think that spiritualism does play a very valuable psychological and sociological role. And I do think that is kind of something that we're missing, a way to, to deal with these parts of ourselves that are just not rational. There are parts of human mm-hmm. experience that are wildly irrational, totally mystical, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, but something that we can't quantify and something that we can't easily define. And these ideas of taking things back to back to the refugees of some kind of shaman, of some kind of spiritual rite, of, a, of an exorcism, like that might be the way to go for some of this stuff. And we don't really do that so much. Even if we do, it's usually in this horrible evangelical megachurch way for it's like, you want you want an exorcism? 500 bucks. All right. Yeah. It, it's still quantified and, and absolutely disgusting and not and not um, community oriented at all. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 religion just completely washed and and like having had all of like the mystical, spiritual, and uncalculable elements just totally sucked from it. Yeah, it's commodified like every other fucking thing. Yeah, I re- I really like the idea that we don't just need a uh, economic revolution to be rid of capitalism. We need an ex- <laughs> we need an exorcism to be rid of its kind of demonic presence. We need goths. an army of marxist goths to just sort of chase away and 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 (laughs) i mean exercise the spirit of it yeah we're working on that (laughs) an an army of goth exorcists here here to save the day it's like it's like a much better ghostbusters reboot absolutely we talked about this a little bit in our episode with jake flores on people under the stairs that 
like actually there's probably a reason why a lot of uh people on the left especially now uh are really interested in things like the occult and mm-hmm. tarot and um magical practices because that corporatized commodified religion has proven to be nothing but another another layer of capitalist realism so right, and another there. layer of domination and, yeah. and patriarchy as well. Um, and generally throughout history, you do find that the people in society who are marginalized, um, immigrants, women especially, uh, any slave populations, if slavery is a thing, those people really, really get into spiritualism and mysticism. It's like the one era, it's looking for the one space that the dominant force can't control. Yeah. Is there is there anything else that we want to kind of pick up from this film to to draw out of it as we as we start to round things off? Hmm. I'm looking at my notes. Looking at my notes. Oh, there was something that I that I just wanted to touch upon briefly. Um, the loss of civil liberties to keep people safe. That, mm. I, I remember, was such a big part of the war against terrorism. Yeah. In I mean, we had the Patriot Act that just crushed civil liberties in a horrible way, and it kind of makes me think of that scene where Nancy's parents put locks on, on the doors and bars on the windows to keep her in instead of instead of letting her find a sense of community and solidarity. All the parents of this town just increase the control they increase the isolation which just makes everything worse and god what an american thing to do <laughs> right yeah and, that, and that's historic too that's not even that's not even the war on oh, terror yeah. i mean like that is kind of like the classic you know government state response to like any kind of external stressors to crack down on the liberty of the population absolutely I mean that's what that's what um, that's what Agamben said in the early two thousands, mm-hmm. right? The state of exception, the ability to be placed beyond the law, because the normal it has been it's now the norm. Because those normal those normal in inverted commas powers of like uh, civil liberties and due process have just been scrapped, have just been abolished. Why? Because we're under so much threat. We're under so much threat that you can't have the same kind of legal protections anymore because you know what if what if one of one of these people is the bad is one of the bad people who are coming to get us and you're right. you're mentioning of like uh you know p- putting putting bars on the windows and locks on the doors to stop a demon that lives in your dreams <laughs> is, it, it reminds me of the tsa right like the tsa is just it's, yeah. it's it's security theater is the term right it's just there to, to give you the sense that something is being done when in reality like like that is a completely inadequate way to face the problem of of like decentralized global terrorism right like the the tsa has like stopped zero of the terrorist attacks that have happened in the united states since 9-11 right like like they are totally powerless to stop the the white nationalist shooters that, that are the current terror threat and it's yeah. like and it's like you know when you go through and you see like you know, it's just some somebody with disabilities just be tr- being treated in the most inhuman way possible by the by the TSA oh, agents, or like, you know, like the the ever increasing list of things you just can't fly with anymore because they're too dangerous. Yeah. 
And just the humiliation, yeah. like babies on the no-fly list, like literally infants right? yep. on the no-fly list. Or I remember a story about a mom who had some breast milk that she'd pumped being forced yes. to drink it to prove mm-hmm. that it wasn't a criminal, uh, some kind of chemical agent. Yeah. Um, the random quote-unquote uh, inspections that always seem to be leveled against anybody brown, um, mm-hmm. which my classmates in in school definitely got you'd get like a british citizens who are who are graduate students at like an ivy league college being stopped like seriously you really think that this this woman is going to be a threat you really think she's going to blow up the plant she's she's working on her dissertation man she's not uh, she barely has time to eat <laughs> you're wrapping up a dissertation you 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 haven't seen the light of day in weeks <laughs> And and the stupidity of it too, like even people I, who are not leftists or terribly subversive. I remember when the whole shoe thing happened. Now you yep. got to take off their shoes. I remember like my dad and my uncles going like, "We got to take off our fucking shoes. What if someone puts a bomb in their underwear? Are we just gonna have to get buck naked and yep. go through this thing? Like, come on, what is this shit? This is ridiculous." And we still take off our shoes <laughs> for this stupid thing. Yeah. And the, and then like the grand irony is like if you've if you've ever been like like to to an airport when when like the the TSA screening line is just getting absolutely slammed they just throw all their own yeah. rules out the window and people are walking through with their shoes on and they're like you know you don't have to take out electronics anymore because they're just too fucking busy that day and you just scan them through so like right. clearly like it doesn't actually matter if they can just chuck the rules out because it gets a little busy. Right. They don't give a shit. They, they, you look at them and you don't see people who are like, yes, I'm, I'm here to protect the world. Like they know it's bullshit too. Right. Yeah. It's just a day job, whatever. It's a shitty day job. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? That like the idea of how do we, how do we make ourselves immune to monsters? Like, or the, or that which we have made into a monster, because obviously Freddy Krueger is a, is a kind of manufactured and created monster. And the same with all of the discourse around terrorism. It's a, it's a manufactured and created othering. Right. Like, is that like, all of that is not to, is not to make us safe. It's to make us feel as if we should be being made safe. You know, it's, it's, it's busy work. It's, it's, you know, there to do nothing but psychologically reassure us on some level. Oh, we're being taken. We're being protected somehow, whilst allowing us to, to avoid our own uh, involvement and our own kind of ontological entanglement with those processes that produce the monstrous figure over there, or in the dream, or 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 you know, on the flight next to you. Right. It's forbidden to even talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, watch what happens when a mainstream political figure ever dares to even suggest like, hey, maybe we have to stop creating monsters. Everybody just crucifies them. I mean, look at the response to Representative Omar when all she did was mention like in the shadow of 9-11, Muslims were unfairly persecuted and that's just going to make things worse. Members of her own fucking party. Fucking Nancy Pelosi was denouncing her and she just got still to this day is just inundated with like death threats, lynching threats, just the hate she got for just saying something totally real. Um, And and I think people are still mad at Jeremy Corbyn for saying that, too. I think Jeremy Corbyn brought up like, hey, we need to consider the ways that we might be creating monsters with our actions abroad too. people. I think that's a big part of why even more like liberal ish 
figures in the UK just hate him and demonize him. Yeah. They're like, I'd rather have Boris Johnson than him because he dared to suggest that we got to stop fucking up. Yeah, and like you see, you see like the the I guess the monstrous inverse of this too, right? Like the architects of these of these genocides and these nightmares, all like you either get an absolutely cush New York Times column oh, job where you get paid millions of dollars to do literally like it's not even nothing. It's it's like you're doing negative amounts of things for society to give terrible advice or, for shit that failed 10, 20 years ago. Or you're George Bush, and and a decade Ugh. ago people were like, this guy's a war criminal. But now he's like he's a quirky old man that paints and he pals around with Ellen, right? Ellen, who yeah. just totally he paints yeah. veterans of his war, right? That's like John Wayne Gacy shit to me. That's so sick. He's painting his fucking victims. He's making them pose for him mm -hmm. and painting them and like collecting their souls into his work. And then he gets to go fucking cuddle with America's favorite talk show host. It's like, hey, be nice to him. We all have we all have our different opinions. Blah blah blah. In, just, in many ways, ah! in many ways, George Bush is <laughs> is some kind of like monster that lives in the collective American nightmare. Who who kind of just pops out and slashes things to pieces and horrifies us? Hmm. The entire some, some Bush kind of family, man, generations here. of them have just been committing fucking evils for like hundreds of years. <laughs> and you know, especially talking about George Bush, you know, you were talking earlier about how it was basically restaging the Cold War, and yeah, you know, uh, you had Bush was back. Yep. Uh, Cheney, Cheney was back. You had right. all of these, all of these like blood-soaked goblins that had been like crawling through American politics for twenty years suddenly popped their head out into daylight and went, "Let's do it all again." Right, and we're seeing that again. What was the name of that guy who was appointed to be like in charge of the Venezuela response? That was a guy who helped run the fucking nun gang rape squads yep. over in Nicaragua and shit. Like, oh God, what was that fucker's name? And of course, Omar got crucified for suggesting like, hey, this guy's bad. It's like, hey, you were rude to the man who ran the nun gang oh, yeah. rape squads. That was rude, Representative Omar. You should be nicer to the to the murderer, to the dude who like juggled babies on bayonets and yeah. shit. Oh my God. But this is this is the thing that that you can never you can never um, fully kind of uh, abolish the monster. What you can do, though, and I think this is something I've been thinking about quite a lot lately, is like the the important thing is not that monsters are beaten. The important thing is that the struggle against them doesn't stop. Uh, like because monsters always return, right? There there will always be another kind of uh, nightmare figure that infects politics, that infects kind of the cultural zeitgeist that will produce new horrors. But, uh, and, and, you know, this goes back to the person I've been reading a lot about at the moment is Walter Benjamin, and he talks about, like, the centrality of the class struggle, and it's the struggle against the monster, it's the struggle for a kind of utopian, egalitarian future that is the thing that is always continuous throughout all of these things. So we may occasionally, you know, set the monster on fire, but we know that they, they, they might, in fact, they will try and return. And so it's a struggle against that, which is the thing that has to be carried on. Right. And I think like that, that, that ties into something that's like truly existentially scary, right? Because like, how, how do we will ourselves into a world where like 
Freddy Krueger can be redeemed. Like like the the demon slashing monster can can be healed and and therefore exercised. Yeah. Which like the work that it would take to do like like what that would look like would be horrific. <laughs> right. Well. Well, good uh, chat, good chat, good chat, team. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, uh, thank you, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you. It was fun to talk about uh, terrorism and Nightmare on Elm Street and how much Johnny Depp sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really the takeaway here, right? Is that we're all, yeah. you know, it's it's kind of, it's kind of sad that he didn't have any roles in Hollywood after his appearance in Nightmare on he Elm Street. Just- disappeared but we can remember him as he was which was this bright hopeful up-and-coming young man who did not embarrass himself in any way he made he made a great blood fountain (laughs) he was very good he looks good in a bucket right he's probably he's probably working second unit somewhere right now just just think just just talking to his friends at the bar after a hard day filming and they're like and they're like, oh, hey, like, Johnny, tell that story about that time you were in a, a Wes Craven movie. Yeah. yeah, but and I mean, he's not a big star and he's not famous, but he's like, you know what? I got friends. I got loved ones. That's what it's all about. Just being a good person and a good member of my community. It's the power of friendship. <laughs> now, there's there's a political utopia that I can believe in. One where yeah. Johnny, Johnny Depp is not a celebrity. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, thank you. Um, thank you again for coming on our show. Uh, and just to, just to close out, uh, where, can our, where can our listeners find you? Where can they find your work and how can we support you? Well, you can find my work on RightGood. That's R-I-T-E-G-U-D. We've got a Twitter account and there's a Patreon and that's good. And uh, you can look for my work in your favorite sci-fi fantasy magazines. I've also got a short story accepted by the New Haven Review, and I'm not sure when that's going to come out, but I'm very excited about that. And I'm on Twitter as Benedict underscore RS. Excellent. Well, of course, uh, as always, have links to all of that good stuff, including your social media, your other, your podcast, your fiction, in the show notes. Thank you very much, Wait. everybody, and stay spooky. Stay spooky. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay Stay spooky. spooky.